Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Merry Christmas, listeners, and happy Hanukkah to our Jewish friends. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan. We hope you're having a great Christmas day right now. Maybe you are driving to a family member's house. Maybe you're just relaxing with your family. But either way, we hope that this podcast brings you some joy and some fun and some relaxation as you take a break this uh, Christmas. And today we are reviewing National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, otherwise known as Christmas Vacation. Just right. a much simpler title. I don't know anybody who tacks on that national lampoons there at yeah the beginning. yeah now there have been more than just christmas vacation there was a national lampoons uh just regular vacation before this that came out in 88 i believe or 87 um but this one i think is by far the probably the most popular of all the lampoons series of movies um is this one right here the christmas this christmas vacation movie yes it absolutely has the most lasting pop- popularity oh, yes. i would say um, technically, if I'm I'm not mistaken, I wrote down the scores. Um, Vacation, the 1983 original, is considered critically better than this film. Gotcha. But regardless, this Christmas Vacation is the one that people go to. And this is definitely, I would say, considered kind of a cult classic in certain ways, if not just a Christmas classic. It's, it's a little bit more in that cult realm because it's more unorthodox than most Christmas films. Yeah, yeah, I would say it's definitely, although it has maybe some culty uh, things to it, I would say it's definitely in the camp of just your typical American classic at this point. Now, it's a bit more adult than maybe a, a Christmas story or Home Alone, but there it still does capture that, you know, American Christmas-like holiday and festivities and all the craziness that surrounds that that I could definitely see. I, I totally understand why it's become kind of a traditional American movie at this point, holiday movie. Yeah, this is definitely more of an adult Christmas film. It is PG-13, mm-hmm. which, and it is quite risque. I do have a story surrounding that, my first time watching <laughs> this film that I'll get to here in just a minute. But <laughs> if you are watching with kids, then... um There is a new feature out on Vudu, which is a digital media store. It's owned by Walmart. It's called Family Play. Um, It basically mutes or skips scenes that you don't want your family to see or would be uncomfortable to watch with your family. I did check. This is on Family Play. So if you are in the mood to watch Christmas Vacation with your family, I'd say that's a pretty good option, a pretty safe option. So you don't expose your children to some choice words or some risque scenes is is what we'll say right but uh this film did actually just celebrate its 30th anniversary on december 1st it came out in 1989 and it was directed by jeremiah chechik and this is actually his big screen debut and the only other movie he went on to do was an early johnny depp film titled benny and june Mm. one that's always making its rounds on the streaming platforms but i've never gotten around to it right 
And uh, Alan, did you see who wrote the film? John Hughes? Yeah, this film is written by John Hughes, which I tend to forget every year until Um, we watch it and I see it. I'm like, oh, yeah, this was written by John Hughes. And listeners, if that name sounds familiar to you, he also wrote another Christmas classic called Home Alone. Right. And of course, some of the greatest coming of age films ever made, such as The Breakfast Club, A Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, okay, this isn't this isn't a trivia contest of how many movies Corbin and Allen remembers John Hughes wrote. Regardless, <laughs> John Hughes is a fantastic writer and mm. also I'd say a great director as well. Now, the score was done by Angelo Badalamenti. Oh, no way. Yeah. David Lynch fans may recognize his name as the composer for the cult TV show hit Twin Peaks. Yes, I know. Yeah, Angelo has definitely been on most, if not all, Lynch projects, I think, since really close to the beginning. He wasn't on Eraserhead, but I know he was on like the Twin Peaks, of course, um, he was on Lost Highway, I want to say, and definitely on uh, uh, Mulholland Drive. So he's very well known and very well kind of follows David Lynch whenever he does a project. So it's very interesting to see him writing music for a movie that is very much a comedy and not really like artistic and weird like David Lynch usually does. Right. And the score to this film, I would say, is completely forgettable i can't even recall any notes to my mind at the moment right now not to say it's bad it works fine within the context of the film but it's just one of those scores that doesn't really stick with you afterwards but i guess it more so sounds like a product of the 80s considering this film that came out at the end of the decade right i don't know not much to write home about there so the film had a pretty modest budget at the time of 25 million dollars and it did grow, go on to gross domestically $71 million. It's not so, bad. So, yeah, for a uh, holiday-themed comedy and uh, kind of at this point, because this is the third film in the National Lampoon Griswold franchise, its predecessor did absolutely horribly. It <laughs> did pretty well for itself. Now, yeah. it, it didn't open at number one. It opened at number two at the box office with $11.7 million. Surprise, guess what was number one that weekend in 1989? Back to the Future Part 2. About to say, yeah, I know Back to the Future came out in 89, which we are going to be reviewing in, a, I think, here a couple weeks yep. from this recording. Um, so, actually, it won't be Back to the Future 2, but it will be Back to the Future retrospective that we'll be starting. Right. But yeah, that would that is not surprise me that Back to the Future beat out Christmas Vacation in the box office. That is no surprise to me. Back to the Future, especially the first one, did I remember great and was a financial audience success and critical success. So, but again, opening at number two is not bad for a contender of that kind of a movie. And it, of course, was Back to the Future 2 was number one for the second week in a row. Um, Christmas Vacation didn't have any competition opening weekend that was number one. For anything else, everything else had already been out at this point. Um, They're probably gearing up for the bigger Christmas films to come. But after Back to the Future 2 was, of course, Christmas Vacation. And then Harlem Lights. Never heard of it. Uh, I think think I've heard of that one. Oh, really? I don't know know much about it. 
Yeah. And coming in fourth was Steel Magnolias, which was a Julia Roberts romantic comedy drama film. I haven't seen it. And of course, Disney's The Little Mermaid came in ah. at number five. Crap, that was 1989? Yes, sir. Oh, wow. I was thinking that was 30 years way ago. like in the middle of the 90s. Wow. No. Um, and that, I believe The Little Mermaid had already been out for about like five weeks or so. Gotcha. Okay. I, somewhere around that time frame. Now, as we said, Christmas Vacation has had a lasting impact. Currently, it holds a 7.6 on IMDb. Getting close to eight territory. That's a yeah. pretty high score for IMDb. Yeah, that is a very high score. Uh, that's way above average uh, for IMDb scores. It is interesting to note at the time, critics and audiences, critics thought it was very okay. They weren't entirely impressed with the movie. Metascore has it at a 49, which means mm. it's very mixed reviews. And cinema score. Audiences coming out of the theater gave it a B plus. It's not too bad. Not too bad, but really not too great either. Um, especially for a Chevy Chase comedy like this, should have I think it at least should have got an A minus. But I think uh, audiences weren't enthralled with this one. Mm -hmm. Now over on Rotten Tomatoes, sixty five percent of critics gave it a positive approval rating which does mean that it's fresh. It's just not certified fresh. Um, it's kind of towards that lower end there, getting closer to rotten, whereas 86% of the audience members gave it uh, positive reviews. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that also, once again, makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure that these scores, I wonder. I do wonder how much these scores have fluctuated over time. I don't know if maybe uh, Rotten Tomatoes is a great way to look at that, um, but I would like to know, had IMDb or Rontemos been around at the time of its release, how those scores would have fluctuated over time. It's kind of hard to look at that kind of that kind of data, but it would be interesting to see if it has changed at all. Yeah, and I think the best comparison we're going to get is seeing that between a B plus and a 49 on Metascore, and now it currently holds a 7.6 on IMDb, this movie really has gained a lot more appreciation, a lot more fans like this movie as the years have progressed, especially because it's it's hard to believe, but this film is 30 years old. Right. Yeah, it's surprising how old this movie is and how much staying power it still remains to have. It's one of those movies where it's just kind of become ingrained in the culture and probably will never leave. So the first time I saw this movie was when I was not old enough at all and we did well okay i'm getting ahead of myself so we were in corpus christi texas for a i think it was where we were going to be spending christmas we were going to do something completely different that year we lived in texas at the time we weren't going to make the journey up north back home so i think we decided to go to corpus christi and we rented Christmas movie so we picked up Christmas Vacation but I don't mm. think my parents maybe they had seen it they didn't remember it probably um, by the time I was six years old this would have been in the year 2001 so the movie was I don't know 12 years old roughly at the time so I remember we picked it up on VHS we went back to the hotel my mom and sister fell asleep but <laughs> My dad and I are watching it, 
And once we got to the pool scene, and if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Ah, uh, yes. I looked at my dad and I'm like, I think we should shut this off. And so we did shut it off. So I had never watched Christmas Vacation until I want to say I was like an older teenager, probably, I think is when we returned to it. And then quite a few Christmases ago, my grandma picked me up the Blu-ray holiday collection ah. where it's Christmas Vacation, Elf. A Christmas Story and the Polar Express, which is gotcha. a fantastic Blu-ray collection to pick up, by the way. Right. Also kind of an interesting one because Christmas Vacation is by far the most not like those other ones on that, <laughs> on that collection. <laughs> but let me think here. Uh, when I watched this, I've always seen this all the way through. This would be my second time watching it. Um, I watched it. Oh, man. I was probably probably like mid teenagers, 15, 16. And at the time, my parents were not really keen on movies like this. Although I knew that my dad liked this movie. And I think maybe even had it recorded off the TiVo at one point. And so when my parents weren't looking, I decided to watch oh. this movie, right? Oh. Um, so <laughs> just because I'm a bad kid, you know? <laughs> In reality, this isn't really that bad of a movie, and I was definitely of age at the time that I watched this. Um, but since then, I think I've only seen it in pieces. I've only seen it really in chunks. Oh, really? Um, so I know we tried watching some of it when we were at my grandparents' house, and my grandparents were pretty quick to shut that off. <laughs> it was getting close to the scene when he walks in and is looking at the underwear. Uh-huh, anyway, yeah. so yeah, I've, since then, I've only really seen this in chunks up until now when I get to watch it again. And I actually, I was at... I was going on Black Friday sales to see what Walmart had and, and bought this movie for like, I don't know, five bucks oh, on nice. Blu-ray. So now I have it on Blu-ray here. So <laughs> Nice. Yes, my girlfriend promptly covers my eyes and hits the fast forward button. Oh, wait, let me rephrase that. My fiance promptly. Ah, yes. <laughs> That's right. It's changed now. <laughs> That's right. I am engaged. Yes, my fiance promptly covers my eyes and hits the fast forward button whenever these uh, questionable scenes arise. There's really not too many of them. There's just the department right. store scene and the pool scene. I don't think anything else really warrants uh, skipping over, but definitely yeah. awkward. And there's no, it should be mentioned, there's no nudity in this right. film. Um, right. And it, it makes sense. It's PG-13, so... As Alan mentioned earlier, this is the third National Lampoon Griswold film in the series. And I'll mention the overarching franchise name in just a minute. So there was a film starring Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo, his his on-screen wife. Their kids were different in this in the first movie, though, and it was just called National Lampoon's Vacation. And that movie gotcha. is rated R. I believe right. it's the only R-rated one. I haven't seen that one. I've seen that in bits and pieces. I was never allowed to watch that one, but of course it was like playing on TV all the time. So I was always getting bits of it here and there. I would I would really like to see it someday though, especially because it has a 93% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm looking at it here. It's directed by Harold Ramis. Yes. Most famously known for being playing one of the lead roles in Ghostbusters. So I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious to know what this. I think I've seen a scene or two from it, but I don't think I know I haven't seen it all the way through. So I am curious to see what exactly this movie is all about, because it just looks kind of interesting by the scores that we have here and directed by Harold Ramis. Yeah, all I know is that that's kind of where the characters are set up. They meet Cousin Eddie 
who lives in Kansas. They meet him there for the first time. And their ultimate goal is to get to Wally World, a made up amusement park. And that was actually based off of John Hughes short story Vacation 58. And that appeared in the magazine National Lampoons. I'll talk about the magazine here in just a minute. But that film was followed up by the 1985 European Vacation, which has a 36% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's considered really bad. But things picked back up with uh, Christmas Vacation in 1989. And as you know, that was much better received until things came to uh, an abysmal halt with the Griswold family with Vegas Vacation in 1997, many years later, with a horrible 13% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Yikes. And more recently, Ed Helms and Christina Applegate kind of had a reboot slash sequel. That's right. It was just called Vacation, and that came out in 2015. I have absolutely no desire to see it, but... I hear it was not great. Yeah, I didn't get the numbers for that one, but we can only imagine right. <laughs> how bad they are. But from what I understand, Ed Helms plays the son, Rusty, all grown up, and he kind of wants to take his family on vacation. I'm sure it's awful, and I'm not going to give it a shot. <laughs> Surprisingly, this film does have a sequel. Did you know that, Alan? It does? There is a sequel made for TV in 2003. So like what would that be? 14 years later came out only on TV. It was called Mm. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation 2 Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. Oh, you know what? I think I have heard of this. Yeah, I looked at the IMDb page and I'm just like, oh, this is a thing that exists and moved on. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that doesn't really surprise me. A lot of these famous movies tend to have sequels. I know that there is a Christmas Story 2. Um, oh. I know that there's a Home Alone 2, 3, 4, and then five. technically 5 <laughs> that I've seen all of, by the way. <laughs> what? They Look, once you get past 2, <laughs> they become complete garbage and they're not good. Um, so this doesn't really surprise me all that much that Christmas Vacation also got a sequel and seems to be that it is... Uh, <laughs> Based off of Cousin Eddie, which imagining him in that turtleneck Uh, is making me laugh. So, yeah, I actually forgot there was a sequel completely until doing research for this review. And I remember seeing it a few times in the video store and I was always intrigued to actually watch it when I was younger to just see, oh, what what could be what could the follow up be to it? Um, Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo are not in this movie and it's really only like Randy Quaid and I think the daughter in this movie reprised their roles maybe one other person but yeah it's I don't know I have no desire to watch it especially because it it was released on television yeah yeah it's doesn't look to be anything of uh, too much quality it looks like so after John Hughes had the hit Vacation, which I said was based off of his um, short story he published in the National Lampoon magazine. They wanted him to do a follow up film, and he decided to base it on his other story published in the magazine, Vacation 59. Now, the magazine itself, it was called National Lampoon, and it ran from 1970 to 1998. And interestingly enough, that magazine is a spinoff from the Harvard Lampoon, which began way back in 1876 at Harvard College. Mm. And National Lampoons was just kind of this off the wall, 
kind of um, off-color, raunchy magazine with some really kind of like weird and quirky stuff in it as well. Now, there are other National Lampoon films that have nothing to do with the Griswolds. So some of the creative staff, such as John Hughes himself from the magazine, they worked on creating the original films that include the highly successful, now cult classic, Animal House, which I was definitely not allowed to watch growing up, although, of course, I wanted to watch it. Right. <laughs> I haven't seen it to this day. I'd be interested in, in seeing it. I don't think there's much redemptive value to it, but it is 90% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's Yikes. great. Um, and it stars Jim Belushi, I believe. And after that, John Hughes did write National Lampoon's Class Reunion, which didn't do very well at all. And then after that came National Lampoon's Movie Madness and then the three vacation movies. And um, the last vacation film, Vegas Vacation, was made by a different production company. Ah, gotcha. Now, I have heard of Animal House. Um, I don't know if I've heard of the other ones that you mentioned. So I know for a fact that Animal House was one that I heard of. Now, it yeah, like you said, it doesn't look like anything too crazy. It definitely looks like more like a cult film than anything else. But yeah, with that, with with that though, I that does kind of clear up what exactly the National Lampoons are to me because. I was thinking, well, what about what about Animal, Animal House? I know that, that it didn't have much to do with the Griswold family. That makes a lot more sense now that it was a part of a magazine that was a, a bunch of short stories. Right. And after, I would say, I believe it was around um, the final vacation movie, which would have been Christmas Vacation, um, the use of the name, because um, those movies had received critical acclaim, and they were all like fairly well associated with some high level talent, such as mm -hmm. John Hughes and Chevy Chase. Um, the company started leasing like you could buy um, the name for a one time use. So hmm. people would create um, comedy movies and just attach the name to the front, calling it National Lampoons put in the title. Right. And uh, ultimately, there have been tons of National Lampoon films since then. The most recent one coming out in 2015 and uh those movies are highly exploitative raunchy sex comedies on par with the american pie films um they're they're usually pretty trashy and not really worth your time i've not gotcha. seen any of them i don't plan on seeing any of them gotcha christmas vacation was actually originally going to be directed by none other than chris columbus oh yeah sound familiar I'll yes. tell you why in just a sec. <laughs> Unfortunately, Chevy Chase and Columbus did not get along. So Chechik got the film instead. But Hughes was writing another film at the time, which we've already mentioned, Home Alone, which came out the following Thanksgiving, and he gave Chris Columbus uh, directorial duty for Home Alone. Gotcha. So before we get into spoilers, I did just want to tell you the famous talent involved with this film. Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, Brandy Quaid, Juliette Lewis, Johnny Galecki, John Rudolph, Diane Ladd, E.G. Marshall from 12 Angry Men. Mm. Yeah. That's surprising. It, I actually didn't know that. <laughs> that was him. He is um, the wife's dad. Okay. Okay. The bald. Well, they're, they're both bald. I know. 
Uh, Doris Roberts from Everybody Loves Raymond, William Hickey, Julia Louise Dreyfus from Seinfeld fame. Did you recognize her as the neighbor? Um, so I haven't actually seen Seinfeld. Oh, great. So, yeah. <laughs> and of course, Brian Doyle Murray. Gotcha. So, yeah, we've got some pretty big names in this movie, it looks like, which at the same time isn't really too surprising given what kind of movie this is. All right, listeners, if you haven't seen Christmas Vacation and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause. Go ahead and watch the movie. Come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. The Griswold family hopes to have a big old fashioned family Christmas. Well, at least Clark does, played by Chevy Chase. His family, on the other hand, just wants to survive their crazy extended family that shows up to stay at their house over the holiday season. Ranging in wacky antics from cutting down a giant tree in the middle of nowhere to sledding at the speed of light, creating the biggest, brightest light display ever seen, inadvertently destroying the neighbor's house, and of course, crazy cousin Eddie, played by Randy Quaid, Dennis Quaid's brother. But when Christmas Eve finally comes, everyone is holding onto their sanity by a thread. That is, until Clark loses his altogether when his cheapskate boss decides to forego employee bonuses by instead enrolling them in the Jelly of the Month Club. Clark is now in a bind because he wrote a bad check in the hopes his bonus would cover the down payment on an in-ground swimming pool. Eddie, wishing to show his appreciation for Clark, allowing his family to stay with them indefinitely, and buying his kids presents, kidnaps Clark's boss, Frank Shirley, played by Brian Doyle Murray. Of course, in National Lampoon fashion, the SWAT team shows up, but having a change of heart, the Scrooge-esque Mr. Shirley decides to give Clark a bonus with an added 20%. Outside their house, seeing Mr. Shirley off, the Griswolds escape death in a gas explosion due to Eddie dumping his raw sewage into the gutter. This causes the lawn decoration Santa to fly through the air as Aunt Bethany, played by Mae Questel, to lead them in the singing of the National Anthem as credits roll. So I can tell by your uh, plot summary, um, and if you see the movie, this is pretty obvious. The movie is pretty simple. There isn't a whole lot to this movie, and it plays off of this idea that you're taking what normally would be considered as a typical family occurrence, like we're going to go go to the tree farm and get a Christmas tree. Like That's a pretty normal thing for a family to do at maybe a time like this. Uh, or just any, just a traditional thing at, at that, and then takes that and then just twists it in a way that makes that's what how it creates comedy. So take a regular situation and then twist it in some crazy way um, to make it just stupid, but at the same time funny. That, and it plays off of this idea throughout the entire movie, where essentially it's just this really simple premise, but takes it and twists it and makes it uh, makes comedy out of that. And that's why I think this movie is. Part of the reason why it's just so well grounded into the culture is because it's taking family. It's a very heavy emphasis on family, but at the same time showing how crazy things can get and kind of being like, oh, yeah, my family's like that, too. Or at least it feels like it. It really is. It's kind of a vignette of what we would think of as classic Christmas scenarios of chopping down the Christmas tree, going sledding, just having the family over for doing uh, Christmas holiday functions and um, just different scenarios like that. And then it dials it up to 11. Right. 
It's like, what if they chopped down a gigantic Christmas tree by themselves? They'd, oh, wait, but they forgot the axe. So they uproot it from the ground from, mind you, the frozen earth. Yep. And on the way there, they encounter some rednecks and they literally drive under a logging truck and drive off their road. And um, the tree's there and then they have crazy relatives and the cat chews on wires and <laughs> like blows up. <laughs> um, so it's just and, and I do love that about this movie is John Hughes's writing is fantastic. The comedy is fantastic and especially um, the scenarios. And I think this movie wouldn't be um, as good as it is or work as well as it does without um, the actors involved, particularly oh, yeah. the leads like Chevy Chase and his wife. And but even the kids do a great job. Brandy Quaid does fantastic as being this complete buffoon. And yeah. the grandparents constantly bickering is hilarious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think you kind of have the nail on the head. You have to have the right actors, especially the right lead for a movie like this to actually work, because essentially this movie is a satire of the typical American Christmas event, right? That's what this movie is. It's just taking what we were talking about just a second ago, taking what normal families would do on Christmas and then twisting it on its head. It's a satire, what it is. And so what you need is a good actor to, you know, do the right thing and actually act the right way and actually make something, a situation funny by how he somehow screws up the situation or forgets something or whatever. Uh, and Chevy Chase does a really good job at that. He does a really good job at portraying who looks to be on the outside your typical dad. But when you really get down to it, when they get to cut down the tree, oops, they forgot the axe at home. So they have to uproot the tree from the earth and somehow tie it to the top of the car without the, without the roof collapsing on them. And it, that's what makes this movie so funny and so memorable is just the situations that this family finds this, themselves in and how stupid the dad is. But at the same time, what how he is able to get out of the situation is what makes this movie so funny and probably so memorable at the same time. And of course, it has to end in this crazy fashion with the SWAT team coming in. Oh, yeah. But of course, all is magically forgiven. And um, I do say I really do love when um, Aunt Bethany comes into the picture and they've got this crazy uncle and Aunt Bethany. Um, they have her say grace. Grace died 30 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. And then yep. Um, um, she wraps up her cat and wraps yep. up Jello. And um, when she does pray, she leads them in the Pledge of Allegiance for yep. her prayer. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> and like, like we've said before, some of this almost seems like a little too good to work. And I do think that could possibly be a problem for some people wanting more of like a traditional Christmas film, whereas this is absolutely bug nuts and it's just totally off the wall. Um, and like we said, it's it tends towards the more adult side. But um, I, I do also find this film very quotable. Oh, yes, absolutely. There, In fact, half of my notes is just me writing down lines that I just found funny of this movie. Uh, there, In reality, there's not a lot of meat to the story, yes. um, which when we get into maybe criticisms a little bit later, I'll talk about that in more depth. But at the same time, I have most of my notes in here are literally just lines from the movie that I've written down because they're just funny. 
uh, like one here I've got. Clark, Audrey's frozen from the waist <laughs> down. It's all part of the experience, honey. Yeah, it's all part of the... And then right after that, he holds on to his wife and he's like, oh, the Griswold family Christmas where we yeah. can enjoy it in the warm embrace of kith and kin. But he says yep. it with the list because his, his mouth is frozen. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, when he's being uh, rude to the neighbors and he's got like the the lights or something and um he's talking to his very rude uppity neighbors which are pretty funny because they're they're like the scrooges of the story and clark is like why don't you bend over and i'll show you where i can put it and he's like you can't talk to me that way griswold and he's like i wasn't yeah. talking to you <laughs> <laughs> and with the with those same neighbors when uh clark is putting the lights on the on the house and he slips off and grabs into the gutters and that sheet of ice yes. slides out and destroys one of their radios. You know, they're talking, they're like, what happened? And so uh, the wife, Margot, she's just like, and why is the carpet all wet, Todd? And Todd <laughs> says, I don't know, Margot. <laughs> oh, it's great. And I do love when the lights don't work. And Audrey's like, he worked really hard on it, Grandpa. Yes. And Grandpa says, well, so do washing machines. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really funny, too, because you see how much of a fire hazard, you know, oh. he's kind of he is because, you know, he's got like four different uh, extension cords plugged into one hub, which somehow wires back into the I think it's the garage. And there's like 50 more in there yeah. all plugged into two the two plugs that are in there. It's it's I mean, it's funny. What's funny about this is just, you know, how over the top and stupid all these situations are. Uh, clearly, that's a fire hazard. But it's funny because nobody really seems to care. This movie, I think what makes it so funny for me is the kids and the wife are just used to this by now. They're so jaded that some of the situations that happen, they don't really have much of a reaction to it. Uh, they just act like, yeah, that that's happened before i've this is the kind of thing has happened so often in my family i i don't have a reaction anymore yeah and the grandparents and the neighbors are kind of the realists they're kind of the pessimists mm -hmm. of the story and the griswolds are the perpetual optimists except the irony of it is the son russ seems to be the only one that just looks at his dad like are you for real yeah. Like, you want me to untangle this ball or you really thought stringing all of these lights up was going to work. And right. a lot of films have imitated the premise of this story. Um, I'm thinking of Deck the Halls, where they're trying to make the brightest house ever is clearly taken from this. Um, there's also a number of elements from Christmas with the Cranks. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, Tim Allen and Jamie Lee Curtis, which bit of trivia for you, was actually written by John Grisham. Mm. who has written all kinds of uh, kind of uh, crime dramas, courtroom dramas. So totally off the wall, but that's another story. Uh, yeah, a lot of elements, especially from the uh, short John Hughes short story, which I will talk about here in just a minute. Um, I could see where people have imitated that with their Christmas films. Um, I do love when the dad, when the lights do work. Well, before when they don't work, his dad says, I haven't the foggiest. And I told my fiance, I'm going to start saying that from now on. I haven't the foggiest. <laughs> and then once the lights do work, I love when he grabs Clark and he says, it's a butte, Clark. It's a butte. And the line after that, Clark's like, well, you taught me everything about external, external illuminations, yes, Dad. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> One of the other lines I really love that I, my fiance really cracked up at was um, 
when Eddie and Clark are drinking their eggnog and Eddie's just being a nuisance. And he's mm. like, Eddie, uh, can I do anything else for you? Get you some eggnog, uh, get you something to eat, drive you out into the desert, leave you for dead. <laughs> and Cousin Eddie, too, is he at this point has become kind of a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, because Cousin Eddie is just so he's, he's essentially Clark, but like the redneck version of Clark, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so when he comes in, and I mentioned this a bit earlier, his turtleneck is turtleneck only goes oh. about like well, not long past the neck portion and just kind of cuts off. Yeah. And so you can kind of see through his white shirt oh, when, he, totally when he's tacky. first in the house. Yeah, it's hilarious because he's clearly he has their money troubles with the family, right? And he at one point says, hey, I want to get something nice for the kids, but I just don't have the money for it. And <laughs> when you see these scenes where, you know, he has a white shirt, you can clearly see right through the white shirt and his turtleneck is not, doesn't really take up any more past the actual neck part of it. You, he's kind of just, just the funny, funny stereotype of a, of a redneck person. But it's just funny the way that they write him because he is so off the wall and like Clark times 10, but also redneck. And that's what creates for probably uh, becomes he becomes kind of a foil for Clark there towards the end, too, because, you know, he grabs his boss and actually takes Clark literally when he goes crazy because he doesn't get his check and things like that. And it just makes his character really funny. And there's a good reason why his character has become kind of a big name now when, when it comes to just movie characters and things like that. And even lines from him are just hysterical. He's a fantastic character in cinema because he yeah. is so hilarious and he's played perfectly by Randy Quaid, where yes. it's almost hard to imagine him acting any different in real life um, than how he does. And, oh, he's just so gross, but at the same time, so likable. And um, what does Clark say? I'm trying to remember just, their interactions at the table during dinner. um, are so funny yeah <laughs> when um, clark is telling the kids about santa coming and eddie just looks at him and he's like are you for real clark like just dead serious <laughs> and then the dog starts um yakking under the table yeah and clark's like well maybe if you weren't uh feeding him under the table eddie and he's like no no he's probably just choking on a bone <laughs> and of course one of his best lines is, I'm going to substitute it. I'm going to make it friend- family friendly. But when mm. he is out um, in his super short bathrobe, drinking beer and dumping the raw sewage, he's just yelling at people. The crapper's full. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, one of my favorite lines from him, too, is uh, when they're talking about how the young his daughter uh, her, her eyes aren't crossed anymore, I think is what one of the family <laughs> yes. members says. Ruby he says, it's something, ain't it? Falls into a well, eyes go cross-eyed. Gets kicked by a mule, they go back to normal. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it's it's the, the weirdest things. The weirdest things is, I think, what makes him so memorable is he's just, he takes, he's so off the wall. He reminds <laughs> me kind of of my brother at times because of how off the wall he is. And I mean, Corbin gets that, but I, yeah, listeners might not. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Yeah, but it's it's also like you've been saying before that um, it's just kind of taking like kind of the real life stresses of when you do get together for Christmas. It is busy and stressful, but it is at the end of the day, it's highly enjoyable. You love everyone. Oh, yeah. You hug and embrace them. But it does take that satirical approach to... You know, you have probably have a family like this, but what if they were super crazy and right. you think in your perspective, you're the only normal one and you're trying to be happy and um, 
keep everyone together. Uh, I also love when Clark goes up into the attic and he gets yes. stranded and um, he's got nothing else to do because his family left him there to go to the mall shopping. So he has like really old female garments on to keep himself warm watching old home movies. And then yep. they pull the um, attic door out. And he just falls um, yep. through. <laughs> Yep, and what and what this what this movie's target audience is is essentially uh, Mr. Griswold himself, uh, Clark. This is, Clark's age is about the typical or is about the target audience for this movie. They're looking for about middle aged men and their stresses are doing with their in laws and the rest of the family coming to their house and having to work with that and being the man of the house, you know, having to be very responsible for everything. It's that's what the target audience is. And that's why I think my dad loves this movie so much is because he is able to relate to that in some kind of a fashion. Uh, and I mean, it clearly though, it's, it's goes a bit beyond that because you and I are still laughing at this movie. There are still memorable things in it and still things that people can enjoy outside of that age range. But I think the target audience here is about middle-aged men who have to deal with their families coming over to their house and things like that. I think that's where this target audience is mostly going for, where all those relatable situations are stemming off of. That's very true. Yeah, it does seem the older you get, the more you come to find these situations funny because you live through these situations. But the nice thing is it pokes complete fun at all of it. And um, it, it really turns it on its head and, gives you something to laugh at and i think that those are usually the funniest things are things that are true to life because with my dad as well there is kind of that humor from that age range that because it is so true to life they find it hilarious and yeah um i think we find it funny funny for different reasons yeah um because you know even some ways we can relate to more of the kids side where um their grandparents uh have to sleep in their rooms and they don't want that to happen and i do love when the grandparents come all at once somehow and um the grandma is like rusty will you come out and help grandma with this bag i'll give you a quarter i'll give audrey yeah. a quarter too if she comes and rusty is like oh gee a whole quarter grandma <laughs> yep <laughs> there and there's even a line when uh when she- Audrey is talking and complaining to her mom about how she's sleeping with her brother. Yeah. Uh, mom's like, we're all making sacrifices, Audrey. And she's like, do you sleep with your brother? Do you know how sick and twisted that is? Well, I sleep with your father. Yeah, I love that part. <laughs> <laughs> I sleep with your father. And then she's like, are you smoking? No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's cool. just that's what that's what makes this movie so memorable is, is just those situations that family stress that happens every year, but we still hang around because they're our family. You know, we are not really going to go anywhere and not tell them to not come because, you know, they're family. It's just one of those things. And that's what makes it so funny is because of how true to life that these situations are written around and how, even though this movie is rather basic, I would say it does do a very good job at taking a situation and just twisting it in a really strange and bizarre way. Like the sledding incident where he just want the minute he touches the ground because he put oil on the bottom, he just, zaps down and is flying down for three miles or so of track and it's it's hilarious yeah and while i do love that scene i would say that's probably one of the criticisms i do have and i think that scene probably goes on too long it kind of overstays its comedic welcome at least if you've seen the movie quite a few times like i have and that was just one thing i noticed when i was um watching with my fiance this time around i'm like this scene goes on forever 
Mm-hmm. And I get that's the comedy of it is it goes like too far. And in that and of itself is supposed to be the comedy where he goes onto the pavement and right. he goes through, um, you know, ice fishing sleds until he hits Walmart. Uh, it's kind of crazy. But yeah, that that one seems to just kind of come out of left field and go on forever. Yeah, and I will say that there are a few jokes. They're mostly towards the beginning, I think, and maybe that's just me kind of getting used to what kind of movie this is. Uh, There are a few jokes that don't really seem to land. Uh, There's a few that I don't think are particularly all that funny. Um, But for the most part, everything, I don't really have too much of a problem with it. It's just some of the jokes, especially in the beginning. And once again, that might just be me getting used to what kind of movie this is, being, you know, your typical American comedy. Um, that I don't think land very well. And that also kind of stems off to one of my bigger problems I have with it. Uh, it's kind of a criticism, but I think it's more of a personal preference. Uh, this movie is, it doesn't really, it's pretty basic in terms of not just its uh, script and what situations it puts itself in and what it writes about, but also just like how it looks. There isn't a lot to the cinematography in this movie. They don't do anything super stylistic, which kind of makes it a bit, not really that great to look at necessarily. It's mostly there for the jokes, right? The jokes are the main selling point. Uh, but at the same time, being a typical American comedy, it's pretty basic when it comes to its visuals. That's, I guess, another criticism I can give it. And especially as far as John Hughes films go, I'm thinking in particular Ferris Bueller's Day Off and The Breakfast Club. I really think those films are well edited and shot very well. Mm-hmm. Um, this film, yeah, it doesn't have any sort of memorable editing to it or even per se how it looks. I think it definitely does stand better on its acting comedy and story, but right. you're absolutely right. It is kind of missing that he, it, it has that Hughesian like comedy to it, that solid writing, but it's missing the Hughes look, I would say. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, like I said, it kind of is, typical for American comedy to be like this, where the cinematography isn't always uh, a standout in any kind of fashion. Well, especially in the 80s. The, yeah. I mean, when it came to American films in the 80s, I'm, I'm really struggling to remember. I'm sure one of the listeners can help me out. But I'm struggling to think that was a time when comedies were very much in line with how um, this film comes across and looks... Yeah. Nothing really special, very generic to it right. as well, which I'm I guess I'm OK with because it's a product of the times and it's kind mm. of interesting to look back at those times. But yeah, um, I mean, so many other Christmas movies look better and are more memorable. You know, a Christmas story uh, just just for example. Yeah, you know, I am absolutely with you. And it's also kind of interesting, too, because when it comes to just comedy in general, uh, you we really don't see a lot of really good ones nowadays, I would say. And even if they are like successes, they're typically very weak in terms of their subject matter and what exactly, you know, they're trying to get into. You know, we don't see a lot of, you know, great comedies nowadays. It seems like once we hit about the early 2000s, a lot of the comedies tended tend to kind of disappear or they are just not being released anymore. So this is one of those movies where it's kind of refreshing to also at the same time to see a comedy that does a very good job at actually making it pretty funny. And even though it may not look the best, still making it memorable in some kind of fashion, which we, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about just lines that have been coming up 
that we just think are hilarious. There are I don't see a lot of comedies that come out recent that come out nowadays that I would consider to be anything stand out. No, and I think comedy does have an issue nowadays because it overly relies on sex jokes or yeah. bathroom humor of some kind. Incredibly low brow humor where this film does have those two kind of sexual innuendo moments, but that's really the only kind of sexual comedy we get in this movie, um, thankfully. And I think the movie is stronger for it, but you're definitely right. Comedies are so focused on bodily humor of sorts that they do forget to figure out how to come up with um, clever things, relatable things, and um, truly funny scenarios just as this film right. does. So I'm thankful Hughes doesn't opt for the lowbrow humor. Right. Well, I guess I lowbrow in the sense of tons of sex comedy. This is taking seemingly lowbrow characters and putting them in uh, or writing them with some, I would say, very solid comedic moments. Yes. Yes. Well, that's that's all I've got. Yeah, that's about everything. <laughs> Honestly, I am surprised I came up with this much. Yeah. <laughs> Which even I think is, I kind of mentioned this earlier, is kind of a criticism all in itself. And I mentioned this a couple of times. This movie, again, is pretty basic. Um, there isn't a lot of meat to it, which I can understand why. It's it's a American comedy, right? Makes sense. I just also at the same time personally would wish that there was a bit more meat to the story than what we use than what we actually get here. But I can see why that would be more of a personal choice uh, than maybe more of a criticism. Yeah, I guess I didn't see it too much as having meat, like or necessarily needing more meat, because I if you know what you're in for, I would say, then that's probably what you're going to get. Yeah, if that makes sense, it is. And that's what that's why they call it National Lampoons is it's going to be something really off the wall on unorthodox, um, strange, but it's going to have some pretty funny characters. And um, I would probably say that's the film's strongest point is the characters writing and these very memorable situations. Right, right. Now, as far as the story goes, this like I said, this was based off of John Hughes story, short story, Christmas 59. The story is mostly very different. Um, the characters' names are all different except Clark and Audrey. I think everyone else's name is different. Um, cousin Eddie is completely different. He's uh, named Uncle Dave in the story, I believe. Hmm. There is also a Taiwanese character that the grandparents bring with them who John Hughes kind of uses a similar character I noticed in the film 16 Candles, I believe. Um, also, the brother is older than the sister. Um, there's no snow outside. It's like it snowed, and then the rain washed it all away. And uh, so it's kind of playing into that kind of um, dumpy feeling, but it's all told from the son's perspective. And oh, okay. it's his mom who wants an old-fashioned Christmas. His dad, Clark, is kind of this grouch who uh, doesn't really care about an old-fashioned Christmas, and he's like bummed out the whole family's coming anyway because it's just going to stress him out, and he's mad all the time. And um, there are some things that are similar, um, such as the grandparent rivalry, and the grandpa says he doesn't want to sleep on bunk beds, and in this movie, we do see them sleeping on bunk beds. Um, 
There's no Christmas bonus for Clark in the story. He gets a cigarette lighter, but that's the end of that um, narrative. He does cut down the uh, down the tree in their yard in anger. Um, there's a bird in the tree instead of a squirrel. The crazy ant does come with bad presents, but instead of a cat, she wraps up a dog, and the dog does get electrocuted. I don't think it dies, though. Um, the turkey's ruined at dinner, and there are some lines from the story that are directly lifted and placed into the movie. Gotcha. The ending is completely different because um, the grandparents bring this Taiwanese character, and he um, steals from them. And Uncle Dave uses, he's like just stealing all of their presents and stuff because their power yeah. goes out. And Cousin Dave uses um, Rusty's BB gun he gets for Christmas to um, shoot the Taiwanese guy who has like an unpronounceable name in the back of the neck. Yeah. And um, he also tries to run in their car, but... Uh, he crashes their car into the ambulance because they had to call the ambulance because aunt, their aunt, who has a different name in the story, but Aunt Bethany, for purposes of the for understanding it, she thinks the stairs to their basement is actually the bathroom door. So oh. she, uh, because the power went out, so she sits down to go to the bathroom, but she ends up falling down the stairs. But she thankfully lands on the chair that was ruined by the short short circuited by the dog yeah so the Taiwanese guy crashes into the ambulance and then he's like zigzagging through the street and he gets hit with the the bb gun so it's actually a pretty funny ending i think um readers today might find it a little troublesome because it's slightly racist toward asian people gotcha the story itself takes place after world war ii so uh japan and america were absolutely not friends Right. Um, at the time. So they're just kind of always like suspicious of the Asian guy and the way he talks. is just really silly and um, kind of weird. The one thing that I was pleasantly surprised about is the end of the story points to the true meaning of Christmas because they look up and they see the uh, nativity star up in the sky. And then they actually sing a, a Christmas hymn together on the front lawn. But then the ambulance or the cop comes up and he is like sorry to burst your bubble everyone but that's just an airplane <laughs> and that's kind of the ir ironic twist there at the end yeah put the icing on the cake so i can't really recommend the story because it's kind of long and the writing is okay um it is interesting to kind of see where the origins of the story come from so if you are interested listeners in reading this um short story then i do i will link to it in the description below for you to check out yourself gotcha so given that this movie is shot in chicago or uh, scenes of it are uh scenes of it are shot down in chicago they do show out the john hancock center um i live in chicago right and so we have signs that are on the highways that are essentially saying don't text and drive right but they always have some witty comment so this this week this last week when i was driving uh around and down south and back up north for thanksgiving to meet with my family i saw these signs and they said cousin eddie says twitter's full put your phone away and i thought that was just kind of funny because it's kind of silly but at the same time, I figured I would share with the podcast that this is what Chicago is doing for this year's, like, I guess, warning against 
uh, texting and driving. That's a nice callback to Cousin Eddie, especially 30 years later on the film's anniversary. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that, you know, it is 30 years after, uh, since this movie's been released and they're doing a, a callback. Yeah, it makes sense. It's just kind of silly. But Well, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? So National Lampoon's Vacation, it's, very, it's a very, very quotable movie, and I can totally understand why it's become a American classic at this point, American holiday classic, more geared towards, I guess, the older side of uh, classic movies, especially holiday ones, but still, I can still see why it is a classic at this point. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a funny movie. It's got a lot of memorable moments in it and a lot of memorable lines as we have very thoroughly discussed in this podcast. My criticisms of it are that I, I wish, I do kind of wish that there was a bit more to the story. It seems like they're just taking, you know, your most basic situations and doing something crazy with it, which is not wrong or bad. It's just, I want, I guess, a bit more from the story, more, I guess, uniqueness to its narrative than what we actually get. Um, and I also don't think all the jokes land for me, although that might just be my age and the time that this story or the, the time that this movie was released in. Um, that being said, though, I still find this movie very enjoyable to watch. It's still a very, very silly and very funny movie. And I can I totally see why my dad loves it because of how relatable a lot of these situations are. So, yeah, it's a fun movie. I would still recommend it. Uh, seven out of ten. Uh, pretty solid recommend. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation has the wit, humor, and creative characters we all know and love from John Hughes' writing. With a bug nuts yet often relatable plot, Christmas Vacation makes for a memorable and highly enjoyable time. Although it's not necessarily appropriate for the whole family, unless your kids are grown up, this Christmas classic holds up 30 years later. Christmas Vacation receives 9 stars out of 10 with a high recommend. And I will say that I did change my rating because I believe last year I had given it an eight. So I do feel like the more I watch it, the more I appreciate the writing and the humor and just just the characters, just the film overall. Right. So, yeah, it's not a deep movie in any sort and there's not much meat to it. But dang, is it hilarious and just such an enjoyable Christmas time excursion. Well, listeners, we do hope you're having a Merry Christmas or a Happy Hanukkah to our Jewish friends. Don't forget to check out our other Christmas specials from years past. We have reviewed Miracle on 34th Street last year, and it's a wonderful life. So definitely don't forget to check those out while you are enjoying your uh, Christmas break with your family and friends. And we do hope you are having a great time and uh, you remember to just slow down and enjoy uh, and be grateful for all that you have. Even if you are celebrating Christmas alone, you're not alone because you've got us here on Silver Screen Guide and you've got us to listen to here on the podcast. And um, don't forget to share this with your friends and family. We love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will actually see you next week, a week from today. Yeah, we will see you with our filmmaker special. So until then, have a Merry Christmas. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube 
Facebook and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. My fiance and I were discussing this the other day because um, there's a new series on Netflix called um, The Movies That Made Us, and one of them examines Home Alone, and she was telling me how they were talking about how Chris Columbus and Chevy Chase didn't get along, so he came over to direct Home Alone. So she gave me that bit of trivia from the Netflix series, and um, I found an online article that was discussing that as well. I have no idea where I was going with this. Um. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, I don't know. Just cut it off, Alan, where I say I found an online article discussing okay. this. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where I was going with that. Okay. Classic. Whatever. No, uh, there's some really great talent involved with this. Oh. I, I remember where I was going with that yeah, with that thing that I totally messed up on. It just came to me. <laughs> okay. I'll I'll bring it full circle. Okay. Okay.